This is part three of a three-part non-promotional, non-CME disease education podcast series paid for by GSK. Speakers were compensated for their time. Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Cardell. I'm a practicing family physician, and I'm also an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. I'd like to welcome Dr. Sunil Joshi uh, to the podcast. Dr. Joshi, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me, Dr. Jen. Um, uh, my name is Sunil Joshi. I'm an allergist immunologist um, in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm the president of Family Allergy Asthma um, Consultants here in town. Excellent. Well, we're excited that you're here. And today we'll be talking primarily about GINA, Global Initiative for Asthma's Recommendations on Difficult-to-Treat Asthma. So, um, Dr. Joshi, let's, let's sort of level set to begin. Um, how do you define difficult-to-treat asthma? Well, um, good question, um, Dr. Jen. So per the GINA guidelines, difficult to treat asthma is asthma that is uncontrolled despite the patient being on a medium or high dose inhaled corticosteroid LABA treatment, so combination drugs, or that may require a high dose of inhaled corticosteroid LABA treatment just to maintain good symptom control and reduce exacerbation. So, um, and I like to point out that difficult to treat Asthma does not mean that the patient is difficult. It just means that disease process, of course, is difficult. And I appreciate you mentioning that. I, I'd like us to go a little bit more in depth into that. You know, we often hear the terms uh, uncontrolled asthma, difficult to treat asthma, as you just mentioned, and severe asthma. Um, but how do these classifications differ? Yeah, and this does get confusing sometimes uh, for folks, even those of us who do this every day get confused in the terminology. So hopefully this will help. So an uncontrolled asthmatic or if someone who has uncontrolled asthma has one or two of the following. So poor number one is poor symptom control. And when I say poor symptom control, I mean, these are folks who are having symptoms two or more than two times a week, using their rescue inhaler more than two times a week, may have limited activities because of their asthma, have nocturnal awakenings frequently due to their asthma as well. That's typically how we look at poor symptom control. Or number two, they have frequent exacerbations. That would be someone that we would consider an uncontrolled asthmatic. As we mentioned earlier, a difficult to treat asthma patient is someone who has, has asthma that is uncontrolled despite being on medium to high dose inhaled corticosteroids with a controller medication or has uncontrolled asthma despite being on maintenance oral corticosteroids those are what we would consider difficult to treat asthmatics. A severe asthmatic is a subset of a difficult to treat asthmatic. So a severe asthmatic is also a difficult to treat asthmatic, um, but this person um, is uncontrolled despite being on the highest doses of inhaled corticosteroid and long acting beta agonists, so high doses of uh, combination drugs and um, having management of their co-contributing uh, cofactors and they still are having issues with their asthma, um, that would be a patient that we consider to be a severe asthmatic. If you, if you want, Dr. Jen, I could go through a case of a patient that, that might fall into one of these categories. Yeah, that would be excellent. Okay, so let me go through a case. So um, MH is a 52-year-old woman with a history of chronic rhinitis, hypertension, and has had asthma for most of her adult life. She's been suffering with coughing and shortness of breath on and off. Her symptoms are present about four times a week, requiring the use of a short-acting beta agonist or SABA, as I will describe it going forward. In the last six weeks, she has had 
um, an increase in her rhinitis with runny nose, sneezing, and nasal congestion. And she is currently using a medium-dose inhaled corticosteroid with a long-acting beta agonist and doing this one puff twice daily. Um, she has added an antihistamine once a day as well, and she takes a calcium channel blocker for her hypertension. She has two dogs at home. Um, she's had them for over five years now. She's a non-smoker. Um, her ACT score, asthma control test score, um, which we do before we see the patient, is 17, um, which indicates that MH's asthma is uncontrolled. Her physical exam is remarkable for nasal mucosal edema or swelling. Um, her, she does have pharyngeal drainage, posterior pharyngeal drainage, but her lungs are completely clear. This patient, MH, would fall into the difficult to treat asthma category based on the fact that she is uncontrolled despite being on medium dose inhaled corticosteroids with a controller, with a second controller medication, in this case, a long acting beta agonist. Thank you for that information. Uh, now, what do you first assess when this type of patient comes into your office? Um, as a family physician myself, I know many of us are going to wonder, you know, where can a primary care physician start? Right. That's a great question, too, because um, when disease processes start to become a little bit more difficult to manage, I think it's important for us to try to understand whether or not they truly, in this case, truly have asthma or not. Um, and this is something that we do as specialists, but obviously can be done in the primary care setting as well. So um, difficult to treat asthma, remember, is defined persistent symptoms and or exacerbations despite being on a medium to high dose inhaled corticosteroid with another controller medication as well, um, or oral corticosteroids, or someone who requires a high dose of inhaled corticosteroids with lava just to maintain good asthma control. So Basically, the first thing I do is I always look at the history again. I go over the history with the patient because um, people, a lot of my patients will come in and they'll say, oh, my asthma is acting up, and they won't tell me what their symptoms are. And so it's important to try to fret out what those symptoms are to understand whether this is asthma or something else that could be going on. For example, coughing could be due to multiple other things, right? We know that coughing can be due to gastroesophageal reflux, upper airway cough syndrome. It can be related to some of their medications, in particular, if they're on an ACE inhibitor, situs, there's so many things that a patient can cough for and it may or may not be their asthma. So, you know, trying to get a little bit more information out of the history can be helpful. If a patient is just complaining of shortness of breath, of course, we know that shortness of breath can be associated with heart disease, deconditioning, obesity, chronic bronchitis COPD, or even something as significant as a pulmonary embolism. So again, getting more out of the history I think can be very, very helpful as you're trying to understand whether or not this person truly is having asthma symptoms. It is also important to get some objective data, and that's when we perform a spirometry, um, which can be done pre and post bronchodilator to assess baseline lung function um, and to get an idea as to whether or not they do have variable um, airflow obstruction. Um, if the initial reversibility testing is unremarkable, meaning they don't really reverse with bronchodilation to repeat the test at some point in the future when they are having symptoms as well. So keep that in mind. Sometimes you may not have a spirometry or a spirometer available to do in your office. In that case, a peak flow diary could be helpful as well so they can get some objective data and see the variability associated with their symptoms. So it, and it is very important to document lung function uh, when we do have a diagnosis of asthma so that we can follow that over time. 
after confirming the diagnosis, assuming that we do have the right diagnosis, it is important to identify and manage the factors that could be contributing to the patient's uncontrolled symptoms and or exacerbations. And, and this, of course, can be done at, at the primary care doctor's office as well. Um, so a couple of things to think about. One is incorrect inhaler technique. Okay, so um, the vast majority of our patients um, will use their inhaler incorrectly until we teach them how to do it. So, so it is important to go over how to do the inhaler um, one technique that I do like to use is to ask the patient to use the inhaler in front of me or show me how uh, he or she would do the inhaler. Um, and that gives me an idea as to how, if they're doing it correctly or not. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is adherence, compliance with medication. So, um, you know, asthma, compliance with asthma medications in general is relatively poor. And so it is important to kind of go through whether or not a patient is taking their medications appropriately. And so I kind of asked them, I asked the patient directly, if, even if it's a child, you know, how often are you taking your controller inhaler? Are you doing it every day, twice a day? Or are you doing it a couple times a week, a couple times a month? Um, how often are you taking it? And a lot of times you'll get an honest answer if you ask it that way. Um, and there are many, many barriers to why people use it, but more, more likely than not, it's because of cost concerns. And so we're seeing this more and more frequently these days where um, patients are just telling us, look, it's too expensive. I, I can't afford an inhaler once a month. And so I tend to skimp on the doses so it lasts a little bit longer. So keep that in mind. And there may be ways in which you can help them with the cost. Another factor um, that can contribute to an uncontrolled, uh, uncontrolled symptoms uh, for a patient are secondary health conditions, um, such as acid reflux, chronic rhinosinusitis, obstructive sleep apnea, cardiac disease, um, and even anxiety uh, and depression can contribute um, to asthma symptoms. So trying to understand what else may be going on in the patient's life or in their overall health can help you understand their asthma a little bit better. Modifying risk factors can also increase the risks of uh, exacerbations. And these things, these include things such as smoking, of course. So we definitely don't want our asthmatics to be smoking. Environmental exposures to allergens, for instance, um, can cause uh, increased asthma symptoms. Indoor and outdoor air pollution uh, can do it as well. Changes in weather, we know about that. Um, medications such as beta blockers, um, you know, we don't think about this a lot, but look at the medication list for patients who may have poorly controlled or uncontrolled asthma, and beta blockers certainly can contribute to that. Um, so, so think about those things as well. Another way to identify whether or not the, uh, they're controlled is to ask them how often they're using their short-acting beta agonist, their uh, rescue medication. And, and so I, I will typically ask them, how often are you re requiring your rescue medication? Is it once a month, twice a month, twice a week, twice a day? How often are you needing it to kind of get an idea as to um, how often they are having asthma symptoms? Um, and then lastly, keep in, in mind that Patients do have side effects from our asthma drugs, um, and that in itself may lead to poor compliance um, and, and low adherence to medication. So ask them about um, the side effects associated with the inhaled corticosteroids in particular, such as um, hoarseness, dysphonia that can be associated with thrush, painful swallowing um, as well. Those are really excellent points, and I think that was very thorough um, and very, very helpful. So you know, going back to our, our patient, how would you assess our patient in the office? Yeah, so that patient, MH, you know, we ended up after doing the history that we went over, 
and physical exam, we did a spirometry on, on her and saw that her lung function had decreased and she had an FEV1 that was approximately 68% of predicted and her FEV1 slash FEC ratio was only 69%. So she had evidence of mild to moderate obstruction and she had reversibility following bronchodilation. So she did improve by over 12% in 200 cc's. So it became pretty clear to us that she had an asthma exacerbation that was reversible. Excellent. And what are techniques to optimize management in these patients? Yeah, and these are definitely techniques that can be done um, in a primary care doctor's office and, and that we do in our office as well. And, and so there are multiple things that, that we can do to optimize management, in particular in a patient like this. And number one is to make sure the patient understands um, how to manage their own asthma, you know, when to use a rescue inhaler, when to call our office because they're no longer in control. Um, this lady came to our office for a regular visit and had been having trouble with her asthma for multiple weeks at a time and hadn't reached out to us. So again, important to know when to call um, for further advice and management strategies. In terms of optimizing inhaled um, controller medications, it is important to confirm that the chosen, chosen inhaler is what the patient prefers, that the patient is able to use it correctly. Um, and so I like to have my patients demonstrate inhaler technique and, um, and then we can teach them back um, to make sure that they are doing it correctly. Um, what are some of the um, barriers to them using the medication? Um, you know, um, consistently, is there a cost issue? So going through all of that, I think is important to, to discuss with the patient. As we discussed earlier, you know, assessing and, and helping to manage some of the comorbidities that may be contributing to the patient's asthma um, it can also be very, very helpful and help to modify those, those risk factors as well. And these include avoiding medications that make asthma worse, such as beta blockers um, that can be oral beta blockers, but also what we a lot of times tend to overlook are the beta blocker eye drops that are used for conditions such as glaucoma. They can also exacerbate asthma or make it more difficult to manage someone's asthma. Uh, it may be also appropriate to consider adding on a combination drug. So if somebody, uh, another uh, controller medication. So if someone is just on in high dose or medium dose inhaled corticosteroid, consider adding a LABA or a long acting muscarinic antagonist or leukotriene receptor antagonist to give some additional asthma control. Um, and then of course, talking about other factors such as smoking and, and discussing smoking cessation, increasing exercise tolerance, what they're doing with their diet that could potentially exacerbate acid reflux, which can then also make asthma symptoms worse. Um, and of course, allergen avoidance, which is critically important in an asthmatic who's exposed to things that they're allergic to as well. So, so also don't forget if somebody's on a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid, um, even with a combination drug, consider bumping their inhaled corticosteroid dose up. So maybe a high dose inhaled corticosteroid um, because that can also be helpful at managing their asthma. And that of course is a time where you may want to consider you know, a special. Thank you so much for going through all of those different factors that could really affect the management of our patient's asthma. That's very helpful. Um, so moving forward, how would therapy be optimized in the patient case that we discussed earlier? Yeah, and it's a good question. And so there are a lot of different ways that we can go about this. So keep in mind that MH was on a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid slash lava. So she was on controller therapy. She clearly is not under uh, optimal control right now. So there are ways that we can manage this. We could either 
add on a long-acting muscarinic antagonist for a little while, or we can add on a leukotriene inhibitor, or we can go to a high-dose inhaled corticosteroid lava combination. Any of those would be suitable alternatives in terms of trying to improve her, her asthma control at this point. So now that we have different options uh, for augmenting our, our patient's therapy, how will we know and when should we actually review their response to therapy? When do we reevaluate? Yeah, and that's also a terrific question. Um, and we all vary kind of in how we do that. But per the GINA guidelines, I would plan to review the response to any intervention with an asthma patient, especially one that has not been well controlled in about three to six months. Now, this of course ultimately depends on how sick the patient is. Um, someone who is not doing very well, you may see them back the next week or even in the next couple of days. So it really does depend on how well the patient is doing. But typically if I'm just adding another medication, increasing the dose of, of an inhaled corticosteroid, I'll see them back within three to six months. Um, to see how they're doing. Now, in, in, in order to review their response once they come back in, you know, we generally go through their symptom control, um, just like we would in their original history when they come in. How often are they using their short-acting beta agonist? Are they having nighttime awakenings due to their asthma? Is it limiting their ability to, to have a good quality of life and physical activities? Um, and I also ask if they've had ex exacerbations since I've last seen them, did they have to go an urgent care center or through their primary care doctor's office. Um, and since like in particular with MH's case, we did a spirometry, I would repeat her spirometry when she comes back in as well, because that not only gives me objective uh, information, um, it allows me to decide what to do based on her subjective responses to the questions that I asked earlier. If the patient is still uncontrolled, despite the therapy adjustment that we made at our last visit, then I would consider a diagnosis of severe asthma. And if this patient was being managed in the primary care setting, this is when I would consider referring to an asthma allergy specialist uh, for further evaluation and management strategies. If, however, the patient is controlled, now they come back like, wow, doc, I'm doing great. This, this change in regimen helped me and I'm feeling a lot better. Then you can consider at that time either continuing with the current care or stepping back a little bit, like reducing the step that you just made to get them back under control, maybe going backwards to where you were before to see if that is able to now maintain their control going forward. Mm -hmm. If they're on oral corticosteroids, of course, you'd want to reduce that first. Any other add-on therapy, um, I would reduce, but I would definitely um, consider reducing the inhaled corticosteroids much slower because, of course, exacerbations can occur as you're doing that. So you want to take that slowly over time. If you step mm -hmm. down their therapy, and now the patient again becomes uncontrolled or they have an exacerbation after you do that, um, that is definitely a good time to confirm that what is going on is truly due to their asthma and not some other uh, medical condition that may be contributing and it would be a good opportunity um, for, for this patient to then go ahead and see an asthma specialist, um, asthma or allergy specialist at that time. Thank you for that. And you did mention a number of scenarios in which we as primary care physicians should consider referring to a specialist. Could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. And keep in mind that um, a, a, an asthmatic patient can be referred to an allergy asthma specialist at any time. However, when we get to the point where, the, where it is confirmed that the patient has severe asthma, they are not, uh, they require high dose inhaled corticosteroids to maintain their control and backing off um, has their symptoms come back, then I really do think at that point, 
um, having them assessed and managed by a specialist um, would be very helpful because at that point, the specialist can look into other medical conditions that may be contributing to their asthma exacerbations. And other reasons to refer do include a difficult time confirming the diagnosis. You know, asthma is not always easy to diagnose. You know, not every patient is the perfect textbook patient. And so sometimes, you know, you're not sure even though they're on medications and responding as to whether or not they have asthma. That's a great opportunity to refer to an asthma specialist. If the patient is requiring frequent or urgent healthcare um, visits, so they have to go to the emergency room or the urgent care clinic or are coming into your primary care office routinely for exacerbations, I think that's when we need to consider specialty referral. If they require frequent courses of oral steroids or need to be on maintenance oral corticosteroids, um, that would be a, another opportunity. Occupational asthma. So in other words, their asthma is worse because of their work environment. Um, that, that would be a great opportunity for them to be seen. If they have other allergic comorbidities, such as food allergies, a history of anaphylaxis, along with their asthma, uh, would be a great opportunity for them to see the specialist to try to manage all of those conditions at once. If they have symptoms that are suggestive of something else, you know, do you think this might be a cardiac issue? Do you think uh, there may be an, an intrinsic pulmonary issue or infections that are contributing? Um, make sure they're seeing an asthma specialist at that time too to help confirm whether or not this is asthma. Um, if the patient may have bronchiectasis, um, that would be a time to see a specialist. Or if they do have multiple comorbidities, like we mentioned earlier, whether it's chronic sinus infections, nasal polyposis, acid reflux, allergic rhinitis, um, obstructive sleep apnea, all of these things make an asthmatic much more difficult to treat and would, would be a good opportunity for them to see a specialist. And those are excellent points for us all to consider. Uh, now, finally, when we refer a patient to a specialist, does a patient not need to be seen anymore by primary care or what's the follow-up from that point on? No, I think it is critically important that our asthmatics are co-managed at that point. So yes, they do still need to follow up with their primary care, just like they would for any other condition, but, um, but even for this as well. So this is why when a specialist sees an asthmatic and, and comes up with a management strategy and a treatment plan, um, the specialist should send a note back to the primary. So the primary knows exactly what is going on with the patient at that time, because when a patient has an exacerbation, he or she may not be able to get in to see the specialist at that time and may get in to see the primary care provider and the pr primary care provider should be on the same page as a specialist. So communicating, between the specialist and the primary care provider can make managing an asthmatic much more smoother than if it's all done alone by the, by the specialist. So I think it is important for, for uh, these patients to be co-managed appropriately. So they're also getting the same messages from both of their trusted providers. Well, these are all really excellent points, Dr. Joshi. I feel like you've given us all a great uh, primer and great information about how we uh, need to be thinking about asthma in the office. So I, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Sunil Joshi, for, for joining us today. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure, Dr. Jen. This was fun. I love talking about asthma. I could talk about <laughs> asthma for days at a time, um, but, but I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to help discuss difficult to manage asthmatics. Thank you. Thank you.